All right. Well, good morning to everyone. It's good to see you. And uh, what an appropriate way to segue into the message today by being reminded of the power of the cross. We stand forgiven at the cross, not because of things that we have done, not because of our good deeds or any sort of merit on our own, but we stand forgiven because of the righteousness of Christ who died in our place, who took the wrath of God upon himself for us. And we stand forgiven at the cross. And we can take great comfort in that. And that is at the heart and the bedrock of our faith. And so we're so grateful for the power of the cross. Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 31 as we continue on in our Summer in the Psalms series. I'm going to read this to you, uh, Psalm 131. And, uh, and then we will work our way through it. it. It's one of the songs of ascent, and I'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. So I'll give you a second or two to find Psalm 131. And if your Bible is anything like mine, you will see that it says a song of ascent of David. David is the author of this little psalm, and uh, it packs a punch, and I am uh, appreciative of it as we look into our own lives and our own hearts today as we examine God's Word. Verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not proud, my eyes, uh, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for this time forth... And forevermore. Well, like Psalm 133 that Pastor Flip preached on last week, Psalm 131 is another of these songs of ascent. And the songs of ascent are a special group of, of 15 relatively short psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and they're often called the Pilgrim Psalms. Four of these songs were written by King David, Psalm 122, 124, 131, and 133. One of them was written by Solomon, that's Psalm 127, and the other ten are anonymous, uh, anonymously written. I recently taught a course on Wednesday night on hermeneutics and how to study the Bible. And so one of the things that we learned through that class was that a good Bible student always, always asks the question, Why? It's an inquisitive question. It's one that we should ask repeatedly as, they, as we move our way through the text of Scripture. And so we would initially just ask the question, why are these called songs of ascent? Well, as many of you may know, the city of Jerusalem is situated on a high hill. These 15 psalms are called songs of ascent because they were sung by Jews during uh, the, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the three main annual Jewish festivals. So as they would ascend up the uh, uphill road to the city, they would sing these songs collectively. It's also thought that the Jewish priests would sing these same songs of ascent as they walked up the steps to the temple in Jerusalem. But with any song, there's a theme, right? And the theme of this psalm that we'll look at today is a childlike trust. A childlike trust. Many of you know that we were gone last week. We were down in Florida with our family. We had a nice time. Uh, about 25 of us gathered down in uh, Kissimmee, Kissimmee, however you want to say it, 
uh, we were down in the, the Orlando area for a week with our family, and we had a, a really nice time. But there was an experience that I had, just an innocuous thing that uh, I uh, observed when I was down there. I got to see what childlike trust is <laughs> up close and personal. Um, we stayed in this nine or ten bedroom house, 20, 25 of us. Uh, as I mentioned, it was just right outside of Orlando. The, the, uh, the uh, facility that we stayed in, this gated community, had this really nice water park. And so we would uh, go there. It had slides, Lazy River. It was a great place to cool off. It was so hot down there. Some of you ask how the trip was. Well, it was, it was really nice. We had a great time, but it was so hot. It was like 97 degrees each day, 110 real feel. I mean, you walk outside and you just immediately break out into a sweat. So we went to the, the water park several times. And Kathy can tell you that whenever we go to places, I, I like to observe people. And uh, so I'm sitting by the pool in my lounge chair reading my book. Uh, I'd often look up, just watch people. Close by me was a father and his child along with what I assumed was some family, family friends. And they were all trying to get this little girl to jump into the pool from the side, but the only one that the little girl would jump to was her father. And it was in her eyes, in this little girl's eyes, she had complete and total trust in her father that he would catch her and that she'd be safe. But she wasn't so sure about all of the others. And that is the kind of childlike trust that we're going to learn about from King David today in Psalm 131. This is the, the theme of this song of ascent, having childlike trust in the one true and living God, our Father. One of the first Bible verses that I memorized as a kid was what Leon read earlier for us in Proverbs chapter 3, actually verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And so as we begin today by asking ourselves this question, do you and I possess this kind of childlike trust in our Heavenly Father? And I want you to really think about that this morning. Do you trust in God? Is that where you're at right now in your Christian life? The Christian life ebbs and flows, right? Ups and downs, hills and valleys. I mean, we all know this, right? We all go through numerous different transitions through the Christian life. And I look back on my own personal life, and I see the stages as to how God was bringing me along. But I, I wasn't always in the best place along the journey. There were times where, you know, I wasn't doing the things that I should do or, or whatever. I mean, I think we all can speak to that. I don't think any of us are going to say, hey, you know, we got saved, we're on the mountaintop, and we've been on the mountaintop the whole time. No, sometimes we slip down, we fall, others help us get up. So the Christian life is a, it's a journey, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's an enduring journey. And, and we begin today by asking ourselves right now where we sit. When people come to me sometimes and they say, you know, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I've been thinking about this. I've been 
uh, contemplating this? I just don't know. And I say to them, what are you trusting in right now for your salvation? What are you trusting in right now? And so when I ask the question, what are you doing right now as it relates to your trust in God? You may be a Christian. You may have been a Christian for a long time. Where are you at right now as it relates to what we're going to look at today, this childlike trust? And trust carries the idea of faith and dependence, okay? So again, uh, we were down in Florida. Uh, One of the days we went to this giant outlet mall, and we were in the store, and it was the craziest thing. My brother sees this guy shoplifting, And, and it's not just one thing. It's like 20 different things, and he's filling up his bags with stuff off of the rack, and my brother sees him doing it. And so he came over to me and he goes, Can you, look, look, look what that guy's doing. He said, those bags that he found on the floor, they were empty. He took the bags and he's filling them with clothes. And so I said, well, we need to talk to the people that work here. So my brother went over and he talked to them. And the, the guy came back over, one of the employees. And what we found out was because the store was so big, they had several employees. Their only job was to watch for people that were shoplifting. How, how sad is that, right? Well, the guy comes over and he talks to us and he goes, just to be honest, he goes, we can't trust anyone anymore. We just can't trust anyone anymore. And I certainly understood just exactly what he was saying. But in my mind, knowing that I was going to preach on Psalm 131 when I got back, I thought, oh, yes, we can. Oh, yes, we can. We can trust the Lord. When all is said and done, the more I study and investigate what is important to God, it always seems to come back to one thing, our hearts, our hearts. He cares about our true heart desire to trust him, to honor him, to obey him, and to follow his word. And so really, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. And in this psalm, we see David sharing about his heart. And so if you're taking notes this morning, First, we see here David's heart of humility. Look at verse 1 again. Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in the things that are too difficult for me. So notice how he begins. He begins with, O Lord. This is the word Yahweh. This is the word for the Lord. It's the proper name for God. Yahweh means the supreme self-existent one. And so David begins by recognizing that God is God. And so as he sings out this song, he's acknowledging that God is supreme. He's preeminent over all things. He is self-existing, which means that he's not dependent upon anyone or anything. He says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes arrogant, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. So David is sort of cluing us in here on one of the great truths of the Bible, that man can only look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God cares about our hearts. In other words, people may appear spiritual and can fool other people, and some are really good at that, but they cannot fool God. They cannot fool God. You you hear stories all the time about church people who are living a double life. I just read an article on this. I thought it was just unbelievable. You may have seen it. It was a, an article on a pastor 
and his wife who were living a double life. I don't know if I don't want to say too much about this, but they were swinging when they weren't involved with the church. And so through this crazy thing that they're doing, living this double life, the wife hires one of the other swinger guys to kill her pastor husband, and he does. And so there was this huge scandal surrounding this pastor and his wife who appeared very spiritual. They would come to to church every week. They uh, looked the part. They talked the part. They may even have seemed to act the part in public, but it didn't mean that their hearts were right with God. And so, folks, we see in Scripture that God wants authenticity. He wants us to be real with Him and with others. And when we first began our study in the Psalms, we looked at Psalm 51, and we considered a very dark period in the life of David. And you remember the story. I mean, David uh, saw Bathsheba on the rooftop. Through a series of events, he ends up committing adultery with her. And then to cover it up, he ends up killing her husband, Uriah the Hittite. He did things most of us will never do. He even tried to cover up his sin so people would think well of him. But at some point in the process, and this is what Psalm 51 is really all about, he recognized that his heart was not right with God. And because of that, he knew that he had sinned grievously against God, and he repented. And in his prayer of repentance that we looked at in Psalm 51, he cried out to God. And what does he say? What does he say? He says, create in me a clean heart, right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so David eventually proved that he was soft-hearted toward God because he owned his sin and he repented. The Hebrew word for heart here is lave. Uh, The heart is really the inner man, the inner woman, the, the seat of our intellect, emotions, and will. And the reason why we need God is because, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can know it? And so we ask the question, how sick can our hearts be? Well, Jesus addressed this in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and he says this, for from within, out of the heart, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, uh, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within the heart, and they defile a person. And so for us to have a right relationship with God, he must change our hearts. And that's a work that God does in salvation. He turns our deceitful hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And so it makes all of the sense in the world why there is such an emphasis on the heart in Scripture and why David begins here by describing his heart because he knows that God sees it, sees his heart. God is most concerned with our heart. Take the Pharisees for example. They knew Scripture, they prayed, and they followed the law to a T. 
but their hearts were not right with God. They were heavy on self-righteous performance, but their hearts were far from God. You know, it's interesting that Jesus saved his harshest criticism for hard-hearted religious people. And you remember what he said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. He called them a bunch of snakes. He said, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, we see the mention of the heart. God sees right through to the heart of every person. And this is why the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 4.23 that we are to watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from our hearts flow the springs of life. And so David begins by speaking about his heart. And he essentially spells out three keys to staying humble. And here they are for you in rapid fire succession. What are the three keys to staying humble and trusting in the Lord? That childlike trust. What are the three keys to staying humble? Well, let me give them to you again if you're taking notes. The first is overcoming pride. Overcoming pride. Secondly, overcoming arrogance. And then third, overcoming self aggrandizement or self-promotion again he says my heart is not proud nor my eyes haughty nor do i involve myself in great matters or things that are too difficult to me so essentially what david is saying here is over time he's learned his place he's finally learned his place after all that he'd been through in his life he finally learned his place he learned that everything doesn't have to be about him Some things are above his pay grade. And so, folks, pride and arrogance and self-aggrandizement, they're all tied together, and they're at the root of most of our sins. And that's why God hates them all. In fact, it's the very thing that's mentioned among the things that God hates in Proverbs 6 and verse 16 through 19. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and the first one is haughty eyes haughty eyes. It's exactly what he says in verse 1. He says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. It's the very first of these things that God hates. It's often translated a proud look or arrogant eyes. And so he's speaking about how much God hates pride and arrogance. And this is why James said in James 4, 6, He says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, the word proud here means to lift oneself up as high and mighty. It's the sinful elevation of self. Arrogance is closely related as it is the fruit of pride. And then self-aggrandizement is sinfully promoting oneself for, for prideful reasons. And so we find here that after all that David had been through, and we know the life of David. We've studied much of the life of David in classes in our church and sermons that we preach from the pulpit. Finally, David has developed a heart of humility. And let me just say this, because it's the pink elephant in the room. All of us have work to do in this area. All of us have work to do in this area. I I heard a guy once say that he was the most humble guy that he knows. I'm like, what do you even say to that? 
what do you even say to that? So let's be careful about bragging about how humble we are. That's not what David's doing here, by the way. He's, he's actually sharing his journey. He's actually sharing how the Lord has brought him to the point where he's at today in his life. Well, secondly, we find here in verse 2 that David's heart of contentment. So first, we see David's heart of humility. Now, second, we see David's heart of, of contentment. Look at verse 2. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. Hey, I don't know what's going on in the church, but we've got a lot of babies being born, right? I mean, it seems like as soon as two or three are born, we have two or three other mothers who are pregnant and they go on the prayer list. It's been a six or seven uh, person thing for, it seems like the last couple of years. We just have so, so many precious babies being born into our church family. Many more on the way. And so as David learned to be more content in his circumstances, he compares himself to a young child who's no longer breastfeeding from his mother. That's the imagery that we have here. It's a child who has not yet been weaned. Uh, They're primarily drawn to their mother with the thought of food and immediate satisfaction. And you mothers could teach a whole lesson on this. But a weaned child embraces his mother out of a desire for love and closeness and companionship. And this was David's humble desire to be fully content in God. And then David repeats himself when he says, my soul within me is like the weaned child. He says it again. But his point here is that weaning may be traumatic in the short term, and we know that uh, when our kids stopped with the time of breastfeeding, it was hard to transition them to a bottle. And I know some of you ladies are going through that even right now. He's saying that weaning may be traumatic in the short term, but it's so important for the child's future development. Listen to what one commentator said about this. He said, the weaned child comes to realize that the denial of one of the mother's gifts does not mean denial of the mother's presence. He comes to love the mother herself instead of the gift received from her. Does that make sense? And so David is expressing that his satisfaction, his contentment is found totally in the Lord himself, not in what the Lord can do for him, but who the Lord is. I have known many, many people who look at the Lord as the genie in the bottle. You know the genie in the bottle, right? Rub the bottle, the genie pops out. What would you like? And I think that's how a lot of people view God and they view Christianity. It's like, what can you do for me, God? But that's not what David is expressing here. He's expressing that his satisfaction and contentment is found in who the Lord is, not what the Lord can do for him. You see the perspective. And we can get caught up into this. We can kind of back away from God and we can kind of do our own thing until trouble hits and then we want to rub the bottle to see if the genie will pop out and help us out of our trouble instead of relying upon him through it all and relying upon him and trusting in him as we go through life's difficulties. The heart of this psalm is that 
childlike trust and contentment in the Lord. And so we've seen David's heart of humility. We've seen David's heart of contentment. And now third, we find David's heart for Israel. David's heart for Israel. Look at verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And so David desires for the people of Israel, his fellow hard-hearted Jews, to finally come to the place where he was at, which was fully trusting in the Lord, this childlike trust. And we know that David went through a lot before he was king. He went through a lot after he was king. Scripture tells us that he sinned grievously against the Lord numerous times throughout his life, not just with Bathsheba, not just with killing Uriah the Hittite. He struggled. He struggled. But what made David a man after God's own heart was he confessed his sin before God, and he learned from it, and he grew in his dependence on the Lord. And this is reflected here in his desire for Israel to always always have hope in the Lord. I think we'd all agree that we, too, have all sinned against the Lord more times than we'd like to admit. Perhaps we, too, have had a hard heart for seasons of time. And if that's where you're at now, or if you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you perhaps have been there recently, I want to I kind of move our way and close out our message for today by giving you what I believe is the antidote for a hard heart. The antidote for a hard heart. And, and these are a series of R words, so they should be easy for us to remember. Okay? Now, before we look at this antidote, let me take you to a real-life situation and show you how easy it is to develop a hard heart and how quickly it can happen. So go with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. It's amazing the wisdom of God and putting all of these stories into the Bible. These are real life happenings, things that really happened. And he, he includes these in his word for us to learn from. And this is a, a great story, kind of sad, but it's a great story. Look at verse 1 of Mark 8. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples answered him. He said, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples and to serve them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 people were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. 
Well, the Pharisees, we talked about earlier, they came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And we usually stop there with the story. Isn't that a great story about Jesus feeding the thousands? It's, it's, it's a remarkable story. So we usually stop there. But let's move on. Verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces that did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. And he said, well, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not understand? Do you see how fast we can turn? They just witnessed this event. This was the, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever did. He fed thousands and thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a couple fishes. That's how powerful God is. That's how powerful Jesus is. They just witnessed it. They just saw it. And they get in the boat and they go, We didn't bring any bread with us. They're with the one that just produced all this for all those people. And then what does Jesus do? And what does he say? He says, how can you even go there? Did you not see what I just did? And what does he talk about? He talks about their hearts hardening up. In that amount of time, from seeing the grand miracle to getting in a boat and then questioning God? You see how fast we can turn. This is exactly how our hearts can harden. We take our attention off of God and how He's cared for us and how He's provided for us and how He has sustained us and we can so easily make things all about ourselves. This is amazing. One commentator said this is a perfect example that anyone's heart can harden. Even faithful Christians, even the Lord's disciples who just watched him do a miracle. So Jesus speaks to the hardness of their hearts. How easily we can fall prey to this same sort of hardness. Something unexpected comes our way, and we forget how God has delivered us in the past. And so I want to give you these, this three-dose antidote for hard-heartedness. The first dose is we need to recognize the effect that a hard heart has on us and repent. We need to recognize the effect that a hard heart has on us and repent. They weren't thinking about 
the fact that their hearts were turning hard, Jesus had to remind them. Hard-heartedness is a spiritual disease. And I think it's a growing epidemic among professing believers. The more I talk with other pastors, the more that I'm hearing about them constantly dealing with people within their churches who are exhibiting the fruit of hard-heartedness. And we're all susceptible to this spiritual disease. These were the disciples, the selected chosen disciples who walked with Jesus, who served the people after his miracle. And their hearts turned hard, and how long? But the good news is, and this is the great news of of the Scriptures, this disease of hard-heartedness is curable. Just like David was cured of his hard heart, and it's reflected in Psalm 131, and just like the disciples were ultimately (laughs) brought to their knees, and they were cured of their hard heart, we too can be cured. But before we can be cured, we must first recognize that we are sick. Jesus had to tell them, because they didn't know. He had to tell them that your hearts are hardening. And this is the problem. Until we recognize our sin for what it is and desire to repent from it, we won't be cured. And so the first antidote for a hard heart is to renounce self and desire to get right with God, to recognize and repent Because once we recognize that we have a hard heart, the Lord will help us to see what's causing that hardness. And by the way, the disciples didn't walk away from Jesus. Their hearts were hardened and they were still with him. So you see, even the closeness of and proximity of Jesus, their hearts still were hardening. This is at the heart of our spiritual issues in life. Our hearts can harden up. And this is why David cried out to God and said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see the humility with that. God, if you see any offensive way in me, I want to change from that. I want to be led in your ways. And so the good news is that God can heal any heart once we recognize our disobedience and repent of our sin. Self-deception is a form of pride. And true repentance is manifested in a changed life. Repentance, as we say often here, is a change of mind that results in a change of action. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And so how do we know if someone is repentant? How do we know if we're repentant? We know we're repentant because our heart attitude changes and that leads to change in our life. God can heal any heart, but we must recognize our disobedience and repent of our sin. The second dose of the antidote for hard-heartedness is after we recognize and repent, we need to rehearse God's statutes or else we can fall back. And so after repenting of our sins, hard hearts begin to soften when we study and pour over and rehearse God's word. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see why David began with his heart. The Bible is our manual for living as it's inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. If we are to live our life to the fullest as God intended, we need to study and obey God's written word, which not only keeps our hearts soft and pure, but allows us to be blessed in whatever we do. Listen to James 1.25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having a forget, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Well, the third dose of the antidote is after we recognize, repent, and rehearse, we need to rejoice each and every day. All our words. And here we're finally coming full circle. We need to have a childlike joy which comes to those who have a childlike trust in the Lord. Folks, we need to see trials and disappointments in life for what they are. No one is immune to trials here on the earth. But as we considered a couple weeks back in James 1, 2 through 4, we are to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Joy doesn't mean happy there. Joy means trusting in the Lord, having a childlike trust in the sovereignty of God, because God is in complete control of all things, even in the things that we think are stinky, and the things we don't like, and the things that come our way, and the things that happen, and we wonder why in the world this is happening. You know what? We're not going to be told by God why, but we need to trust. We need to trust Here's how Paul encouraged the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He said, But we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Flip over to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 12, and we'll close with this today. Hebrews chapter 12. We mentioned this a little bit a few weeks back, that we are in a race. There's a lot of athletic imagery in Scripture. So I'm assuming Paul was a sports fan. He constantly mentions athletic endeavors. And they're great illustrations, by the way, of the Christian life. And here, if you think that Paul wrote Hebrews, which he may have, he may not have, we don't know, but we have an illustration of the Christian life as a race. So I want to read just verses 1 and 2 and and talk about this, just a short uh, bit here before we close our message. 
It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and this great cloud of witnesses are probably those who have gone before us. I think it's representative of the great heroes of the faith that are uh, in the gallery uh, up in, in the heavens who are looking down on us. There are cloud of witnesses. They're surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. An encumbrance is a weight. It's something that weighs us down. In the, it's not necessarily sinful. It's just something that weighs us down, that sort of slows us down in the race of the Christian life. And I can look back on my own life over the years and see all kinds of encumbrances. Not bad in and of themselves, but they were things that didn't help me to run the race of the Christian life. They were things, and I try to make the best of those things, and you kind of in your own life, the things that can possibly weigh you down. And I always illustrate this like the guy that's running the marathon, and every half mile or so, he reaches down and he picks up a rock and he puts it in his backpack. And so every half mile, he reaches down and puts another rock in his backpack. He puts another rock in his backpack. And so by the time he gets about 10, 15 rocks in his back, it's heavy. Encumbrances weigh us down. It's the Greek word onkos. It's a weight or a bulk of something. It's something that weighs us down in the Christian life. But he distinguishes it here. Notice he distinguishes an encumbrance from sin. So he says we're to lay aside both. We're to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We get caught up in the web of sin and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? How do we best run the race of the Christian life? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did we begin the message? We talked about the power of the cross, right? The power of the cross. One of my favorite songs that we sang right before the message When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His answer began with the heart. He said, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it all begins with the childlike trust in Him. There may be some of you here today that don't know Christ as your Savior. You've never trusted in Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Rome as it relates to salvation. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, a childlike trust is a childlike faith. We don't we don't need to have memorized the whole Bible to become a Christian. We don't need to have all of these secondary doctrines down as it relates to receiving Christ as our Savior. So the childlike trust is a childlike faith, and this is what Paul is calling on 
in Romans 10, 9 and 10, he goes on to say, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I did a study this past week on the heart. <laughs> and I only included maybe 10 or 12 verses on the heart. Do it sometime. Take, take the time. There, there are a lot of great sites out there, websites out there that you can go to and you can plug in key words. And all of the times that that word is used in Bible verses, they'll come up. It's a fascinating study on the heart. It's a fascinating study on the heart. You see, that's what it's about. It's all about the heart. That's how we began. It's all about the heart. Where is your heart at with God? Where is your heart at with Jesus Christ? If you need Christ today, we are here for you. We would love to speak with you and talk with you and share with you about the glories of Jesus Christ, the salvation that he offers to those of us who are sinners. Most of the people, I think, that are here today have trusted in Christ with that childlike faith and that childlike trust. Most of us have at one point in time in the past, we've come to the end of ourselves and we've repented of our sin before God and we have trusted in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, the power of the cross. But some of us may be struggling with the same kind of hard-heartedness that the disciples somehow uh, struggled with right after seeing a miracle that Jesus did. It's tough. The, the Christian life ebbs and flows. It's up and down. But we can always turn back. We can always turn back to our Savior. We're here to help you as well with that if you need our help. Let's pray. Our Father, we are helpless sinners that have been saved by Your grace. Thank You for this psalm where David uh, reminds us that it took a while with him. It really did. It took a long while with him. But he got to the point of having that childlike trust. And then he wanted it for the whole nation of Israel. He desired for all of his people to turn from their hard hearts and to have the same kind of childlike trust that he had finally, finally attained. But I'm sure David was on his toes each and every day, because as we saw with the story of the disciples, how quickly our hearts can turn hard. Lord, help us all. With Your Spirit, penetrate our hearts. Convict us of our sin. And Lord, as we see our sin for what it is, may we turn from it. May we truly repent. May we not only recognize it, but desire to turn from it and ask You to help us. We thank You that You have given us hearts of flesh. We're eternally secure in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, we're running this race, and it's long. It's long, and it's hard. There are all kinds of potholes on the trail. There's all kinds of things and obstacles that are in our way. And so we must keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in His name we pray this morning. Amen.